0: After the death of Saul, David returned to striking down the Malachites and stayed in Zikna two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept, and fasted till the evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord, and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought, brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointing? And David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed.'"
1: Once upon a time, there was a prince who would be king one day. You might recognize the story. While he was still young, his father was killed by his uncle. The young prince ran away to hide. While in hiding, he grew up. And the prince said, I just can't wait to be king. In fact, he sang, I just can't wait to be king. It's the story of Simba from the movie The Lion King, isn't it? A young prince who just couldn't wait to be king. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are all about David, a young man who would be king one day, like Simba. But even though he was anointed as God's king, it took many years for him to be crowned king. The book of 1 Samuel ended with the death of King Saul, and the book of 2 Samuel begins with what happened straight after his death. After all the years of being on the run, what do you expect of David? Surely David just can't wait to be king. Surely he wants to have a party and celebrate like we heard before. Surely David would be singing along with Simba, I just can't wait to be king. But David as God's king is different. We will see in this first five chapters of 2 Samuel that he can wait to be king, unlike Simba. In fact, David waits for the kingdom to be given to him. And as the people around him try to take matters into their own hands with lies, revenge and retaliation, David as God's king treats his enemies differently. God's king honours his enemies and punishes those who take matters into their own hands. David as God's king points us to Jesus as God's king, who doesn't just honour his enemies but loves them, saves them, dies for them. And King Jesus commands his followers to love their enemies too. Let's pray as we consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. As we read it today, please help us to understand it. Help us to see how King David's story points us to the story of King Jesus. May we hear and obey your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have your Bible open as we work through the story as an outline in your bulletins. As we are covering five chapters we'll be skimming over certain sections and zeroing in on important parts. You'll find it helpful if you follow along. We're going to see three episodes in which David goes from man on the run to king over the whole nation. We'll see wicked deeds. If it was a movie, it would probably be rated R for graphic violence. But David sets himself apart from the violence. As God's king, he honours his enemies and punishes those who try to take matters into their own hands. The three episodes are a battlefield report in chapter 1, civil war in chapters 2 and 3, and an assassination in chapter 4. In all three episodes, a battlefield report, a civil war, assassination, we see God's king honouring his enemies and punishing those who take matters into their own hands. In chapter 1 we hear of a battlefield report. James read it for us before. In verse 2 a young man has come to tell David that King Saul is dead and that he, the messenger, has killed him. Let's consider two important questions about this battlefield report. Firstly, is the young man telling the truth? And secondly, why is he telling David? Well, the young man describes how Saul dies In verses 6 to 10, he uses lots of details to explain where Saul was, what was happening, and who was with him. The young man says that Saul was at Mount Gilboa, he was leaning on his spear by himself, and his enemies were approaching him. The young man also recounts a conversation with Saul, in which Saul asks the young man to kill him, and the young man follows his request. The amount of detail that the young man uses makes us believe his battlefield report. But it's actually a lie. He made it all up. Or made most of it up. See, back in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, the narrator tells us what actually happened to Saul when he died. Saul was on Mount Gilboa. He was critically wounded. And his enemies were close by. But that's where the similarities end. It was actually Saul's own armour bearer that Saul had the conversation with his armour bearer refused to kill his king. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Saul ended up killing himself. This random young man talking to David was claiming to be the assassin. So that's the first question answered. This battlefield report is false. But what of the second question? Why did this young man come to David? Why would he lie? What's his motivation Well, it's because the young man is an enemy of God's people who wants to suck up to the man who will be the next king. We find out the young man's identity in verse 8 and verse 13. He is an Amalekite, an enemy of God's people over many years. In fact, David's last battle, back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, has been against the Amalekites and he destroyed almost all of them. This Amalekite man has escaped David's soldiers and he sent an opportunity. He probably saw Saul dying at a distance, which is why some of his account is correct. After Saul's death, he probably stole Saul's kingly symbols, the crown and the armband, in verse 10, and thought that he could change his status from an enemy to a friend by bringing the king's stuff to the new king. The Amalekite is expecting David to reward him based on his battlefield report. Surely, after so many years waiting to be king, David would be overjoyed to now receive the crown. But David is a different sort of king. As God's king, David reacts differently to how the Amalekite expects. The narrator tells us that David reacts in two different ways, a lament and execution. See the lament in verse 11. Then David and all the men with him, took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And the second half of the chapter is this beautiful poem of David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. Most ancient kings would have rejoiced when their enemies died, but not God's king. David was sad because the Lord's anointed, Saul, and his best friend, Jonathan, had died. Even though David and Saul had been enemies, David acknowledged that when the Lord's anointed dies, it is right and proper to honor him. David had also known Saul and Jonathan for about half of his life. His sadness here is not just ceremonial, it's genuine. Two people he knew well had violently died. David was believing. Then we read David's reaction of execution. See it from verse 15. Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him, the Malachite, down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David takes this very seriously. Even while at war, he knows that to kill the one who the Lord has anointed, ceremoniously chosen as king, is punishable by death. Even though the Amalekite was innocent of the crime he had boastingly confessed to, he was guilty of deceiving David and trying to gain power from his wicked deed. David, as God's king, honours his enemy, Saul, and he punishes the one who has taken matters into his own hands with his false battlefield report. Now that King Saul is dead, civil war happens. In chapter two, we're setting, the setting up of two kings and the dealings of their two generals. In chapter three, the civil war ends when one general switches sides and the other general takes revenge. Two kings are set up, but they're done in different ways. On the one hand, the Lord has the men of Judah anoint David king over them. On the other hand, the general takes Saul's son, Ishtesheth, and makes him king over Israel. One coronation is from the Lord. One coronation is from humans. And the tribes of God's people are split, they're divided. Some with King David, some with King Ishtesheth. This is not a good situation for God's people. They need one king over all of them. So the two generals and the two kings meet to sort out the problem from chapter 2 verse 12. Let's meet these two new characters. King Ishtar's general is called Abner. Abner was Saul's cousin. King David's general was called Joab. Joab is David's nephew. So Abner is fighting on the of Saul's family. And Joab is fighting on behalf of David. Abner, Saul, Joab, David. And there's a battle between the two sides of the place called Gideon. This is how it goes. Abner's men are beaten and they run away. Abner runs away. Joab's brother Asahel is really fast. And Asahel runs after Abner. And Abner kills Asahel. And Abner escapes. When Joab finds out that his brother Asahel is dead, he is incredibly angry. But he can't capture Abner's myth. And then both sides go home, knowing that nothing has really changed. There are still two kings, and God's people are still divided. Chapter 3, verse 1 summarizes the situation. Read it with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now the civil war actually gets worse. One general switches sides, and the other general takes revenge. You'll read more about this part of the episode in your Bible studies this week. But here's a summary. So, General Abner has a falling out with King Ishbosheth. Abner has been sleeping with Saul's concubine, and Ishbosheth calls him out. Abner gets really angry at Ishbosheth, essentially because his king isn't letting him do what he wants to do. Abner threatens to switch sides and go over to David. And Abner follows this through. He switches sides just because his king won't let him do what he wants. And King David welcomes Abner but without General Joab's knowledge. Remember how Joab feels about Abner? Joab hates Abner because Abner killed his brother. So Joab makes a deceitful plan and executes it in secret. Joab murders Abner to avenge his brother. When David hears about Abner's murder, he reacts in much the same way as he did with the lying Amalekites. He honours his enemy and curses the one who took matters into his own hands. David weeps for Abner and gives him a state funeral, even though he had been an enemy. And David curses Joab for taking revenge. Let's read how this episode concludes in chapter 3, verse 38. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realise that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day, and today... Though I am the anointed king, I am the weak. And these sons of Zeruiah, that's Joab and his other brother, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. David, as God's king, honoured his enemy, Abner. And he cursed Joab for taking revenge. But even through all of this, David is still not king over all of God's people. The civil war finally ends with an assassination. In chapter 4, we see the assassination of King Ishbosheth and David's reaction to it. When Ishbosheth hears that Abner has been murdered, he loses courage, and the tribes following Ishbosheth are alarmed. Ishbosheth's only real power had come from the general who made him king. Now that General Abner is dead, he loses his courage. Now that their king is scared, Yisrach's people get restless. Straight away, the narrator introduces us to two men, Benai and Rechab in chapter 4, verse 2. They're related to Saul's family and they're described as leaders of raiding bands. They don't sound too friendly, do they? Well, from verse 5 to 7, we briefly hear how they callously assassinate their own king. Benah and Rechab sneak in while this was is having his afternoon siesta. They stab him in the stomach, and they cut off his head. Then they scour. Benah and Rechab go straight to King David and present the head of ish to him. This scene seems familiar, doesn't it? It's very similar to the way that the lying Amalekite presented the crown to King David back in chapter 1. Can you guess how David might respond this time? David recognises the similarities too and tells Benar and Rechab that they should have remembered what happened last time. Chapter 4, verse 9. See it with me. 4, verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Benar, the sons of Rimen, the Berathite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziph. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Strong words, aren't they? But Rechab and Banah are very wicked men. Not only did they assassinate a king, but they murdered him while he was asleep. And they tried to gain power by his wickedness. And once again, David as God's king, honours his enemy and punishes those who take matters into their own hands. David honours his bishop by burying him with his family. And David has Rechab and Benad executed, and their bodies displayed as a warning against others who might take matters into their own hands. The violence is excessively brutal, isn't it? It feels like we're back in the days of the judges when everyone did as they saw fit because Israel did not yet have a king. Hang on. Israel does have a king. For a while they even had two kings. And throughout these four chapters, it seems like everyone still did what was right in their own eyes. It seems like kings didn't bring order to God's kingdom. But maybe the problem is which king? Surely David, as God's king, will fix everything. Here's the epilogue to these three episodes. Now that Ishbosheth is dead, the tribes that followed him come to King David. The beginning of chapter 5 describes how they anoint David as king over them. Now David is king over all Israel, not just some of the tribes. Through the false battlefield report, the civil war and the assassination, David is finally king. After all that writing, David takes up residence in the city of David, which is called Jerusalem. And David is given a beautiful palace. Finally, God's people have God's king ruling over them in a palace in a city. Things are great. Surely King David will bring order to the kingdom. But it's not perfect. David is not the perfect king. The very next thing that David does after conquering Jerusalem is and getting a palace, is building up his harem. See in chapter 5, verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Now as king, David can legally do this, but having more than one wife is one of the things God forbade his kings to do back in the laws in the book of Deuteronomy. In two weeks' time, we'll see how this legal sin leads to even more terrible deeds which in turn fractures David's kingdom. David is not the perfect king. King David points to the perfect king, King Jesus. While King David honoured his enemies, King Jesus loved and saved his enemies. See, David as God's king honoured Saul and Abner and Ishbosheth when they rejected him. But Jesus as God's king does more. Jesus loves his enemies and dies for them. Even though his people did not receive him, they rejected him and condemned him to die. The beauty of Jesus' death is that it saved his enemies. Jesus' death reconciles, reconnects us to God. Jesus' enemies are not just the people who rejected him at the time. We are Jesus' enemies too, because we have rejected Jesus as king. When we try to be king ourselves, when we try to take matters into our own hands, we reject Jesus as our King. As Jesus' enemies, we are sinners, deserving of God's wrath, and we are disconnected from God. Yet, as God's King, Jesus loved us and saved us, even though we were His enemies. The Apostle Paul wrote this. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this: while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? As God's King, Jesus didn't just honour his enemies, he loved us and saved us. He reconciled us to God. While King David points to King Jesus, what do we make of the other characters in 2 Samuel? Well, they're trying to live for themselves by impressing their king. The Amalekite messenger, Joab, Rechab and Banar all did wicked things in the name of their king. The Amalekite lied, Joab took revenge, and Rechab and Banar murdered a sleeping man. And David, as God's king, condemned their behaviour. As followers of King Jesus, we are not to be like them. King Jesus invites his followers to be part of the kingdom of heaven, which looks completely different to the kingdoms on earth, where everybody does what they want to. King Jesus gave his followers a command to love their enemies. While he was on a mountain teaching against revenge and retaliation, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven." As followers of King Jesus, we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Yet for us, who are our enemies, I don't think we have wars like the characters in 2 For most of us living in here in Australia, we're not persecuted for believing in Jesus. But I'm sure we can all think of people who have sinned against us. Who might have lied to you, like the Amalekite messenger. Who might have made you as angry as Joab when he sought revenge. We often think of enemies as military foes. But I think Jesus thinks of them as people who harm you. Someone who sins against you. And our natural instinct is to hate our enemies. To hit back at people. To repay evil for evil. Yet the king who loved us while we were his enemies calls us to love our enemies, even when it's hard. So when your brother or sister annoys you, love them, forgive them, pray for them. I have both a brother and a sister who annoy me, and it's hard to love them. Yet the king who, called, who loved me when I was his enemy calls me to love them. And I do my share of annoying to them too. So when your co-worker or your boss gossips about you at work, love them, forgive them, pray for them. It's hard to do that. But your king, who called you when you were his enemy, calls you to love them. When your son or your daughter does not obey you, love them, forgive them, pray for them. It takes a lot of patience to do that. But the king who loved you while you were his enemy calls you to love them. When your best friend or your husband or your wife speaks a harsh word to you in anger, love them, forgive them, pray for them. It's incredibly hard to do that. But the king who loved you when you were his enemy calls you to love your enemy. We started by remembering how David was waiting to be king. And by chapter 5 we saw that, even through a false battlefield report, a civil war and assassination, David finally became king. As God's King David honoured his enemies and punished those who took matters into their own hands. King David points to King Jesus, who doesn't just honour his enemies, but loves them and saves them. And as his followers we are to love our enemies too even when it's hard. Leslie's going to lead us in prayer.
0: Our Father, we are without excuse when we hold on to our unforgiveness. Forgive us when we justify not forgiving You have commanded that we forgive one another over and over, and you have given us your spirit to help us do this. May we be obedient. Amen.